Welcome to the Invest It Best podcast, a show about investing and financial markets, where you'll hear from some of Australia's top investment analysts and fund managers about their views on the market. The Invest It Best podcast is brought to you by Wilson, one of Australia's leading financial advisory firms with a proud and successful history spanning over 125 years. All information discussed in this podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. You should seek investment advice tailored to your circumstances before making any investment decision. Further disclosures follow at the conclusion of the episode. This is the Invest It Best podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Invest It Best podcast. My name is Ted Richards and this episode we're going to speak with Stephen Arnold, Managing Director and CIO at Aorus. Stephen has been investing in offshore markets for over 29 years. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ted. Thanks for having me. Now, Stephen, often I provide the intro about uh, a fund manager's fund, but maybe it's best to hear it from you. So let's start off. Please, can you tell us a bit about the the AORS portfolio and and what you invest in? Well, great. I'd be delighted to. Look, um, the AORS fund owns 15 exceptional global businesses, and those businesses have a number of common characteristics that all come together to, to comprise our definition of quality. Firstly, these businesses have been around a long time. So whatever challenges this year or next year will present, um, the businesses in our portfolio have faced plenty of them before. They're time-tested, they're battle-hardened. Um, they're growing businesses. We want to own businesses that become progressively more valuable over time, uh, and growth is key to that. Um, it's It's got to be profitable growth. Now, if these businesses are in a growing market, uh, that's great, um, but we want to see them growing faster than their peer group. If they're growing in line with the growing market, there's nothing particularly special about that. We like to see businesses that are consistent market share gainers and grow faster than their peer group. Now, we like businesses with conservative capital structures, strong balance sheets, and perhaps never in the last 10 years has that been more important than today. And we also like management who are conservative and very long-term minded. And lastly, price matters. And we want to own businesses that satisfy you know, all those demanding characteristics and be available to us as owners uh, at prices that represent good value. So, Stephen, 15 exceptional businesses. That, that means that you take a quite a high level of conviction and that you're by no means hugging an index. Tell me, what, what can be the, the biggest position within one of your portfolios? First of all, I'd say that from our perspective, it's a conservative way of investing because we set our standards so high um, and, and we um, avoid so many other types of businesses that, in our view, represent investment risk. Now, within our portfolio, we have a maximum position size of 10%, um, and, uh, and we are, our smaller positions tend to be around uh, 4%. So, Stephen, you acknowledged the, your thesis and, and how you map out your investable universe. I'm, I'm interested, is there any sectors within that that you refuse to own? Yeah, look, there's lots of things that we... We actively avoid in order to steer our portfolio towards um, better, higher quality, more durable, more profitable, more attractively growing businesses. We won't invest in banks or insurance companies. We don't like the cyclicality, the regulation, the, the leverage inherent in those businesses. We won't own energy and mining companies. We don't own businesses where the government plays a heavy hand 
in how the industry operates. And for that reason, we avoid utilities, telecommunications, most of healthcare. We're very wary when it comes to emerging markets because of governance risk. So it's been, you know, we've um, not owned anything in, in Russia, um, nor, nor China or India or Brazil. Um, they just don't have the um, transparency and, and low risk characteristics that we seek. So um, we, there, we don't own businesses that are inherently highly cyclical, like cement companies, um, airlines, home building businesses. We like companies where the difference between a good year and a bad year is pretty modest. And, and again, as we go through this year, I think that's going to um, you know, steer us in, in a favourable direction. I won't go through all those sectors that you touched on, but I might, I might zoom in on one of them. And that's, uh, you, met, you, you mentioned you don't invest in banks. Many Australians, many listeners with the banks take, making up such a large portion of the ASX. Maybe if you can just give us a bit of insight as to why you choose not to invest in banks. Look, I think part, part of it is with a broad global universe, we just have simply have so many other more attractive opportunities. And, and I should say maybe just to... Um, slightly divert in to pre present the listeners with a little bit of colour and context of the businesses you'll find in the AORS portfolio. Um, some of the ones that people would know would include Costco, um, where in Australia they currently have 15 successful stores, L'Oreal, LVMH, um, we own Accenture, and we own Microsoft, and then um, the, the rest of the portfolio includes wonderful businesses that provide essential products and services to other businesses, uh, that would go by the names of uh, Sintas, Amphenol, Graco, uh, and so on. Um, now, in terms of banks, um, we, there are businesses where um, there's a lot of inherent leverage, um, which creates a lot of risk. We um, really like to avoid leverage. Leverage has got uncertain cost as interest rates rise. You don't know how much as a bank you're going to be paying for it. It creates amplitude in the earnings profile of the business. Uh, those companies are very sensitive to economic cycles like the housing cycle, perhaps the mortgage cycle, the commercial property cycle, the economic cycle. Uh, the business where the government plays a heavy hand in how the industry operates, um, whether it pertains to mergers and acquisitions, how much uh, equity capital the banks have to hold in the balance sheet in order to lend and to grow. Um, and the returns on capital at these banks and at least internationally is relatively low compared to uh, the very attractive opportunities that we have, um, you know, which is what you'll see in the AORS portfolio. Stephen, you touched on a couple of companies there in your answer, which I'm, I'm keen to, to speak to in more detail shortly. But before we zoom in on Costco, L'Oreal and others that you touched on, I just want to um, reference that I'm aware that you recently got back from a, an investment tour of the US. So maybe if you could share with listeners any insights and what you saw from that trip to the US. Three very quick observations. One, um, and I should say that we were in a variety of cities. We're in um, Phoenix, Arizona. We're in Philadelphia. We're in Chicago. We're in Nashville. We're in Louisiana. Um, so we did um, go to a variety of different places. And uh, one observation was that the... Um, occupancy level in the buildings that we we're in was very low. And so we're hearing a lot about the work from home and what it might mean for building building owners. Many companies are looking to consolidate their office space, not renew leases. And so for the, the building owners, then there, there may well be some stress ahead and the regional banks that provide a lot of the loans to support those commercial real estate um, owners, then yeah, there might be some tough times ahead. Um, so that was one. Um, the office vacancy rate is lower, low, and I think it will, will stay low. 
um, and quite different to what we observe here in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, number two, I think the message on inflation is that while some commodity cost inflation uh, is cooling, even rents are cooling in America, wage inflation feels quite persistent. Uh, so it might mean that as we look into 2024, inflation takes a bit longer to get back to the central bank's target levels. And for companies that, that where wages are an important part of their cost structure, uh, that proves to be um, an ongoing uh, challenge. And the third one is that in Phoenix, we did something fun, which was to take a, an autonomous vehicle ride um, back to the airport at the end of our day. And uh, the company we, we use is called Waymo, which is part of the Alphabet or the Google family of companies. And, uh, and that was good fun. And it's the only place in America that you can take an autonomous vehicle ride. The, the, the car literally has nobody in, uh, in the front seat. But the observation there was it still feels very much like a laboratory experiment. I don't think much has changed in terms of how broadly these vehicles are deployed compared to five years ago. Um, and it feels like it's progress a lot slower as a concept than people might have thought five years ago. And the broader message there is that at AORUS, we like these durable proven businesses and we, we stay away from exciting uh, but unproven concepts like autonomous vehicles. Now, Stephen, I'm conscious that it is a bit different, but personally, I'm just fascinated about this Waymo car. Just out of interest, how do you order a Waymo car? Yeah, look, it was an app very much like an Uber, and um, they won't pick you up from everywhere. Where we, we had to, myself and my colleague Delian, had to walk about 400 metres from where we happened to be to where the Waymo vehicle would pick us up, and um, it only really operates in um, a limited number of defined routes. One of the reasons why it operates in Phoenix and only Phoenix in America is um, the roads are pretty good quality. Um, it rains very few days of the year. And so the driving conditions are quite predictable. Um, you know, they're less likely to run into, it's quite a dispersed city. So you don't have these you know, very heavy congested traffic zones or construction zones that might present problems to autonomous vehicles. Um, and then we asked it to take us to the airport, but the best it could do was take us to um, a light rail station that in turn took us to the airport. Uh, so it gives you an idea of um, it's, a, it's a long way away from mass deployment, if you like. A long way away from mass deployment, but it still beats a trip to a Melbourne airport. In these trips that you do, Stephen, how much of it is looking at a product like a Waymo car or, or you know visiting a Costco or something similar? And how much of it is trying to pick up on a business culture while you're over there? Uh, look, it, it really is. Uh, we are under, trying to understand the management mindset you know, the culture, the values that will inform uh, their priorities uh, going forward. And um, yeah, that might come from um, you know, direct interactions with management. Sometimes we're privileged enough to get a tour of a factory floor. And what, one of the businesses in our portfolio, for instance, called Graco, based in Minneapolis, that makes fluid handling spraying equipment that's used in many applications, including professional paint spraying. Now, as an example of these cultural insights, a few years ago when I was there, um, the, the CEO personally took me through the factory floor that happened to be across the road from the head office. And what really struck me was that not only did everybody on the factory floor know his name, but he knew everybody's name. Uh, so he was deeply connected to um, the heart and soul of the, the company, which is the factory floor and the manufacturing operations. Um, he really had a respect for those, uh, what we might call blue collar workers, but still highly skilled. Um, and he was, um, and it also sent a message to those individuals on the floor that he values and respects them. 
Um, and on the same visit, I was able to have a conversation with their head of product development that was uh, in turn able to illustrate how they uh, create value for some of their industrial customers in you know, these professional spraying and fluid handling equipment. So that was really insightful and the cultural aspect of um, you know, the CEO's personal connection to those key employees really left a deep impression on me. Well, yeah, that's fascinating. Let's explore some of the companies within your portfolio in a bit more detail. You touched on Microsoft earlier, so let's start off there. Now, Microsoft's been going well for a long time. Yeah, look, um, it, it's absolutely a proven business. And in, you know, in fact, when I think um, you know, going back 15 or 20 years, if you, you know, try and come up with a list of the 10 or 15 largest, most important technology businesses at that point, um, there, will, there will be a lot of names on that list that are less relevant today. Um, I think Microsoft would really stand out as being one of the very few that were important back then, but is more important today. It's more important to more people, and that's really a common feature that we look in the businesses that end up in the AORS portfolio. Businesses that grow, um, they have leadership positions, as Microsoft did 10 or 15 years ago, and today they have they are leaders in their market by an even greater amount. Uh, they've strengthened that leadership position. Um, and I'd, Microsoft has progressively become a more valuable business, a stronger business. But the rate of improvement, I think, has really accelerated in the last five years uh, under the leadership of the current CEO, Satya Nadella. Um, it's a business where that's impressed us by not only the rate of growth for the, at the company level, but how broad that growth has been. Products that we all use every day that we could easily assume are very mature, like Windows, Office 365, um, are businesses that have produced surprising rates of growth. It certainly hasn't been all of the excitement around cloud computing, Azure, and more recently AI that's driven the company. Um, it's been growth driven very broadly. And that growth hasn't come from Microsoft taking advantage of what feels like a very strong position with their customers by aggressively raising prices. In fact, in 2022, they increased their prices for their office suite for the first time in 12 years. The growth has really been driven over time by um, creating more services and adding value to their existing propositions um, such that um, more consumer, more businesses, more consumers, more students, more um, individuals uh, want to subscribe to their products and that they also want to subscribe to the more feature-rich versions of their product that have more security, more storage perhaps. Um, and and that, that's, uh, that's also been an important contributor to Microsoft's very impressive and durable growth. Stephen, Microsoft, as you pointed out, it's been a great company for, for quite a long period of time. So I'm fascinated when did you take a position in Microsoft and what was the catalyst? Microsoft uh, entered the AORS portfolio in the middle of 2022. Um, and you might say, well, um, what doesn't the world know about Microsoft? But I think at that point in time, um, it was underappreciated. Uh, the stock in our view traded at a significant discount to what we believed it was worth. Um, I think our view perhaps on um, the quality of the business, uh, the durability of growth, was a bit different than the markets uh, and the, the stock has certainly done well uh, over the last 12 months um, but we believe that the stock price you know as of june 2023 still remains at a significant discount to what the business is worth and um, we believe the business can continue to grow at a very attractive rate for many many years to come 
Before I move on to another company in your portfolio, I'm fascinated just to quickly touch on on something you mentioned there, and that's about AI and um, whether that's a, a threat or an opportunity for Microsoft. So I'm just fascinated, Stephen, how are they approaching the rise of chat GPT and other variants of this? Yeah, look, Ted, Ted it's, um, it's certainly very early days, but I think perhaps unlike Waymo, it's really moved um, quite quickly out of the laboratory, so to speak, and into much more in a broader usage. Um, so I think Microsoft has got some important um, leadership positions a few different ways. Um, one of the key companies behind AI and the company that um, is behind the ChatGPT product that we all hear about is a company called OpenAI, and Microsoft has got a 49% ownership stake in OpenAI. And all of the computing power um, that's required when people use ChatGPT is driven by Microsoft's Azure cloud computing platform. Um, so that's a second way in which they participate in the growth in AI. And the third way is that they've been able to you know, rapidly deploy um, AI and, and the open AI technology into um, all that they do, including um, Teams, including um, the, their Bing search engine, their Edge browser, you know, their Excel and Word products. And, and while we... Um, we may not be using them every day today. Um, they will increasingly be made available to their consumers and increasingly used over time. So integrating them into their everyday applications in ways that make those applications more useful, more efficient, more valuable um, is the third way that Microsoft is, is really participating and taking a leadership position in AI. Let's move on to another company, and that's LVMH. Stephen, um, Aorus, your portfolio owns LVMH. So the question that I'm keen to ask is, if we're potentially heading into a global recessionary environment, what do you like about LVMH right at this time? Well, there are many things that we like. The first is the business is very broad, um, that they, uh, it's far more than um, the, the famous monogram brown handbags, that they participate in many luxury categories across many brands, and they do it in many, many countries. Uh, and that creates some in, inherent resilience and robustness um, in their business in the event that there is um, a recession. Um, number two, the business takes, uh, we believe, an unusually long-term mindset into how that they run, such that in tough times, we're, we're confident that the business will be run with the long-term health of the company in mind and that they won't fall into the temptation of making short-term decisions that would compromise the long-term. Um, and the third thing is when we look back to difficult um, economic periods, including the COVID period and including 2009, uh, the business has remained remarkably profitable uh, and we're confident that, that you know, should in the next year or two, we enter another difficult period um, that LVMH, even if earnings are lower than the prior year, that they'll remain you know, remarkably profitable and be able to you know, continue through time and grow at an attractive rate and take market share in, in an attractive market. Maybe if you can share with us, how did LVMH go during COVID? Yeah, look, as you can imagine that um, when people are not able to tra travel and shops are closed and most of what they sell doesn't lend itself to online shopping, um, the business was under a fair bit of stress. But um, the earnings in the year 2020 were actually slightly higher than what they earned in 2017. So they were lower than 2018 and 19 but higher, still higher than what they earned in 2017. Um, and their profit margin you know, remained very attractive, even though they didn't have to, they didn't cut large amounts of their employees. They didn't have to end leases 
um, in a way that would have meant that you know, they don't have um, shops to sell their products in when stores do reopen. And so the business remained managed for the long term, uh, but the but the the profit profile of the business remained uh, remarkably resilient in the context of what was going on around them. Well, that's fascinating to hear about LVMH. I'm going to move across to another retail brand, albeit at probably the other end of the spectrum, and that's L'Oreal. Stephen, what what did you like about L'Oreal at the time? Yeah, look, um, L'Oreal has been in the AOS portfolio since the inception of the portfolio, which is in March 2018. And one of the many things that we like about and attracted us to L'Oreal is, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, we like businesses that are durable, that consistently grow a bit faster than their markets, you know, as a demonstration that there's something special about it and that they're managed for the long term. Well, L'Oreal was founded in 1912. Um, it's only had four CEOs in its history. It's very much managed for the long term. It's a very profitable business. Uh, it, it is the largest beauty business in the world, even though it has only a 13% market share. So there's lots of scope for them to continue to get larger in an attractive market. And they've very consistently for many years grown faster than their market. And you can imagine that being the lead, having many of the leading brands, um, having the most important relationship with many um, travel retail stores, duty-free stores, department stores, puts them in a very advantageous position relative to their smaller peers. And that's been demonstrated over a long period of time through their very profitable growth in excess of the broader market. And that gives us a lot of confidence the business continue to can continue to grow at an attractive rate in excess of the market for, for a long, long time to come. Even um, another large competitor of L'Oreal, Revlon filed for bankruptcy last year. So why is L'Oreal different from Revlon? Well, you're right that um, you know, Revlon is one of you know, several mid-sized beauty companies that have had real difficulty um, over the last few years and, and um, Revlon's got a few problems. One is that its, um, it's, it's business has a very significant amount of debt relative to the earnings of the business. And as interest rates have risen over the last 12 months, it's become more and more difficult for the company to service its debt, to pay its interest. Um, that's number one. Um, and because of the high debt load, it's a business that's really underinvested in the brands, the people, um, the, the product innovation um, for a number of years. And so the debt problem might have come to a, to a head very recently, but the problems that it's caused have been um, a significant impediment to Revlon for a long time. Um, and it's also a pretty narrow business. It sells mainly through pharmacies, the mass market, um, and primarily under one brand. Whereas L'Oreal, it's very different. It's got a very conservative balance sheet. Um, it, the company mentality, we talked earlier about culture and management mindset. The mentality is always to keep the foot on the accelerator, invest in their brands, create the excitement and desire and newness around their brands. And the business sells across many um, channels to market, department stores, specialty retail stores, travel retail stores, um, across many price points, across many brands and many countries. And that breadth, uh, as with LBMH, you know, creates really valuable robustness and resilience to the business. Um, and that's something that is a, a real point of difference with Revlon. Okay, let's move on to a, another company that you touched on, I think, right at the beginning of our discussion. That's Costco. What, what do you like about Costco? 
Well, Costco is a remarkably successful and, and remarkably different retailer. Um, and the first way it's different is you have to be a member to have the right to shop there. Um, but Costco knows that once you pay your membership fee and you come into the store, then uh, you expect value. And value is just not, not just cheap prices. Value is a combination of quality and price. And um, uh, they're deeply committed to making their store operations very efficient um, to use their buying power in order to create that combination of quality and price uh, to put great value on the shelf. Um, and it's been a remarkably successful proposition for a long period of time. What's also, I think, very impressive about Costco is how successful that concept has been in so many countries. And there are many retailers that have done well in one country, but has have been unable to successfully take that concept to another geography. Uh, Costco has taken their concept to many countries that have remarkably different cultures and 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 store layouts, urban densities, like South Korea to Mexico to France to Shanghai to Melbourne to Perth, uh, more recently to Auckland. Um, and it's worked everywhere. Uh, so that's um, you know one of the, the the many things that have attracted us to Costco and give us a lot of confidence that provided that the business continues to be managed going forward the way it has for a long, long time, they will be able to continue to grow um, at a very attractive rate uh, and do it very profitably for a long, long time to come. Um, Costco sells staples like breakfast cereals and and other defensive resilient products but it also sells unique products let's call it flat screen screen tvs and and the like so i'm just fascinated is costco a a defensive company or a cyclical retail i think that's a good way a a good question ted because um i think costco what makes it resilient is it is a remarkably flexible retailer and they they um they have the benefit of um, consumers, 100 million consumers membership and trust and confidence such that when consumers come to their store, they're confident that what Costco is putting on the shelf represents that combination of quality and value. Now, over the last two years, Costco sold a lot of flat screen TVs, a lot of barbecues, and there is not simply not as much demand for them this year as there were last year. But Costco can substitute those products and put more of other other things. It might be pet food, um, where there's more demand this year than there was last year. Uh, It can reallocate the shelf space. It can use its buying power. Um, It can use its trust with the consumers to provide um, great value um, in other product categories uh, and respond to the way that demand is changing. And so in that respect, I think it's very resilient. It's very defensive, but it's better than defensive because... I think it's got a very attractive, inherent growth characteristic to it. Yeah, I I tend to agree with that. And that Aldi has a similar model with that Isle of Dreams in the middle of the store where it's often just random items, but it's um, carefully chosen products that Aldi has the data to say that it's going to be well-received by clients. Um, yeah, yeah I was going to say, I was going to add to that. What also makes it defensive and resilient in an environment where prices are going up and consumers are looking for good value is that's what Costco stands for. And over the last 18 months, when gas prices have been um, very high in Australia and the United States, 
Costco has been the cheapest place to get gas. And oftentimes when people drive their car and, and take advantage of Costco's cheap gas prices, well, I walk into the store and buy other things as well. Um, so in an inflationary environment where perhaps value is even more resonant, you know, Costco is in a great position to provide it. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, we see in Australia something like uh, Chemist Warehouse being incredibly popular in Australia for um, filling prescriptions and getting your your pharmaceutical products. That's often, Costco is often a place where, correct me if I'm wrong, Americans turn for, to complete prescriptions. Yeah, that they are. Um, it, it's a material part of their business, although they do many things. Um, remarkably, they're the largest seller of fine wines in America, the largest seller of jewellery in America, um, the largest seller of lots of things that people wouldn't naturally associate with with Costco. You know, they've got great um, buying power. They've got great um, merchants that can identify value, understand what customer, customers um, desire from them and, and put it on the shelf in a way that really is very effective. As I was doing some reading for this episode, I, I, I came across a stat that said Costco only stock 3,700 items. Um, now, Stephen, uh, I've got really no base rate to compare that to. So how does a Wool- Coles or a Woolworths in Australia compare to that 3,700 items within a supermarket? Um, I'm not so sure on the Coles and Woolies, but here's a, an interesting point of comparison. Walmart um, has about 120,000 different items on the shelf. Now, that provides consumers with great choice, but it also means that there's great complexity I think one of the, going back to what attracts us about Costco, part of the secret source of the business is that's 3,700 different items. And they can channel enormous buying power behind far, far fewer goods. And that delivers that great value proposition to the consumer. It also means that over the last couple of years, when supply chains were a lot more challenging than they are today, Costco was able to make their, their product sourcing and their supply chain um, their warehouses and delivery networks much, much more effective than many other retailers, such that when consumers came into the store, their shelves were stocked and they were full and consumers, customers, members could get from Costco what, what they were looking for. And lastly, in an inflationary environment, it gives Costco just enormous muscle, enormous buying power um, to deliver good value with that um, 3,700 items. And it just keeps the business inherently simple. At AORS, we love simplicity. We own only 15 stocks. Costco loves simplicity. And that narrow, deliberately narrow selection helps keep their operations um, very simple and it makes the, the, the business very effective. I feel like um, we've already witnessed the rise of Aldi in Australia in that it's gone from being quite niche into really mass market throughout Australia. Have you got any insight as to, in terms of Costco's plans in Australia? Because it's still relatively limited where the locations are around the country. Yeah, look, I think Costco can be quite a bit larger in Australia over time. Uh, in their store expansion, Costco are uh, deliberately slow. Um, I think in Australia, you might see them open you know, one or two more stores per year, but they can do that for many, many years. They love Australia because it's a very, very, it's an unusually concentrated market. Coles and Woolies have got a much higher share together than you'll see in almost any other country in the world. And that creates, uh, that lack of competition um, creates a great price umbrella and Costco can come in and we can deliver something different uh, to consumers. We've got even more scope to present value to consumers than we have in 
uh, the more competitive markets like the United States, where they've been just super, super successful. So Australia, I think you'll see a much bigger Costco, you know, five and 10 years from now, um, and they'll be opening new stores every year between now and then. Okay, Stephen, it's been absolutely fascinating to chat today, um, in particular, uh, to learn about how you think about Microsoft, L'Oreal, Costco, your portfolio construction. Um, yeah, once again, thanks very much for taking the time to chat today. Thank you, Ted. Okay. Now, thanks to listeners that have already rated uh, the Invest at Best podcast show. We really appreciate it. If you're interested in anything that we've discussed on the show today, best to speak with your Wilson's advisor or you can contact Aorus. Make sure you subscribe to the show if you haven't already to receive uh, the next episode when it's released. Um, We're going to wrap it up there. My name's Ted Richards. See you next time on the Invest at Best podcast. This podcast has been prepared by Wilson's. Wilson's has not independently verified any of the information given in this podcast. All effort is made to ensure information was accurate at the time of recording. No reliance should be placed on this podcast in making any investment decision and past performance is no indication of future performance. The directors of Wilson's advise that they and persons associated with them and Wilson's may have an interest in financial products referred to in this podcast.